I'm looking forward to our uh, time in the Word of God here this morning, and I want to invite you to take your Bible and make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter number 4, our text today is going to be verse 1 down through verse number 6, and uh, we're coming into the uh, second half of the book of Ephesians. So uh, we made it through the first half, and uh, what a wonderful first half Ephesians is. So rich, so deep, so encouraging in the theology that Paul presents to the church. And so now he's leading us into more practical things. And uh, the focus of this particular text is unity in the Spirit. And that's what I've titled the message, is unity in the Spirit. And so we'll begin reading here in verse 1 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, and we'll come down through verse number 6 together. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and with all all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When we come to thinking about the church, what is the most important need for the Lord's churches? I believe the most important need for the Lord's churches is this, that they are spiritually healthy. They are spiritually healthy. Health is everything, both physically and spiritually. Health is everything to the body. A person may have great abilities and great wealth and great fame, but if they lose their health, none of the rest really matters, does it? And the same principle applies to the church. Now, some might think that a healthy church is one that is large and has great numbers. Others might think a healthy church is one that is wealthy and has a great big bank account. Others might think that a healthy church is one that is doing as many things as possible in various kinds of ministries. Maybe that's what makes a healthy church. Well, The truth is that none of those things determine whether a church is healthy or not. And why is that? Because all of those things that I mentioned, they are external things. Health in the church is an internal thing. Health in the church is an internal reality. One can appear to be healthy externally, but be dying internally. And I believe that is the case for many churches in America today. There are many that appear healthy outwardly, but internally they are dying. And one of the key factors to consider when it comes to a healthy church is what Paul brings to our attention here. It is the subject, it is the need for unity together in the Spirit among God's people. And this is the focus of Paul's thought throughout this message. As we've mentioned previously, the book of Ephesians could easily be divided into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 3 show us the uh, theological truth of the gospel, the gospel mystery that has been revealed and fulfilled in Christ in bringing together Jew and Gentile as one people of God in Him. But now we come to chapters 4 through 6 that bring us to the application 
of that gospel truth to the people of God, to His church and its lo- the local churches. So we find ourselves transitioning today from the doctrinal to the practical. And to start the practical emphasis, Paul writes exhorting the Ephesians to live in a manner that is gospel-oriented, that cultivates unity among God's people. You see, unity is a key mark of health in the local church. And I firmly believe this. I'm not just saying it to say it. I believe we have good unity here in this local church. But because we have unity does not mean that that could not be hindered or or gone against in some way. We must be on guard and keep this unity. This unity is experienced and exemplified in the knowledge the church has of the gospel and they're living in accordance with that gospel. So understand that what Paul has done in Ephesians, I believe, is strategic, not only in himself, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because our Christian life and living how we live, it is first founded upon the truth of the gospel. If we don't know the gospel and the truth of what God's done, we're not going to live a Christian life in the right way. It's all founded upon this reality. So we must know the depth of the gospel if we are to truly live as we ought to live for Christ. So Paul here has a great call to the Ephesians and to us in how we ought to live among the church and the unity that we need to cultivate. So notice in our notes here this morning, Several things I want to point out to you, but your basic points, but I've given you more notes just to take home with you. Notice with me, number one today, the call towards spiritual unity. The call towards spiritual unity. And Paul begins this text by reminding them what he's enduring, where he is. And what we look at with Paul is that he's actually an example of living unto Christ. That's letter A, Paul's example of living unto Christ. Now, if there is any personal example in Scripture of how a Christian ought to live outside of Christ himself, I think Paul would be a great one. Paul's a great one. Now, he wasn't a perfect man, but by all means, he was a man who genuinely surrendered his life to Christ, and he was going to live for Christ no matter what it cost him, no matter what it might bring upon his life. We notice in verse 1, what does he say? He says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Now, Paul just mentioned that earlier, didn't he? Chapter 3, verse 1, he says the exact same thing. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So, why was Paul in prison? Well, he was in prison ultimately for preaching the gospel of Christ and being faithful to his Lord above all else. Now, Paul does not consider himself a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of, of Caesar but a prisoner of Christ. You see, Paul is in prison on Christ's behalf physically because he was first a prisoner of Christ spiritually. His heart is bound to his Lord. does not matter what may come to him in his life. He is allegiant, he is faithful to Christ and his call upon his life. His life is bent on faithfulness to the Lord who died for him and rose again, who saved him and called him into this great service. In fact, when Paul knew ahead of time that he was going to suffer for the sake of Christ, by going back to Jerusalem, he said this in Acts 20 and verse 24, 
He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That just reveals his heart, friends. But I think we see Paul's example in the broad picture of what he's even communicating. You see, Paul's imprisonment gives additional weight to his own words. Why is that? Because Paul is calling on the Ephesians to live in a certain manner that he himself has also lived. Who are the people that are, you are most likely to listen to when they urge you in a certain way? Those who do those very things, right? You ever hear the saying, do as I say, not as I do? That's a common saying. But the reality is, if we're going to instruct someone to do something, we ought to also be willing to do it ourselves. We ought to live it ourselves. You see, there are some who think they can just command others to live a certain way, but they do not live it themselves. Do you know what that kind of person is called? A hypocrite. A hypocrite. Now, Jesus, speaking of the religious Pharisees, said this in his day, Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. So the Pharisees had that exact motto as their life, do as we say, but not as we do, because we don't do as we say. Paul used to be that person. Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was that hypocrite, but no longer, friend. He's calling on them as an example of one who is living the very things that he is writing about here. Ian Hamilton rightly said that godly example gives spiritual weight and credibility to the words that you speak. So with Paul's example in view, through his life and imprisonment, Paul here says, therefore, connecting us to what he had previously just said in chapter 3. We recall that he ushered a prayer for them to be filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul believed that prayer could be answered because God, God can do all things. He is able to do far more abundantly, more than all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. He went, he went on to show how God's infinite power for His people is, is shown forth and brings Him glory in the church. And so it's upon this wonderful truth that Paul takes the Ephesians into the realm of their own personal lives that they must live. Because our Christian life truly depends upon our understanding of the gospel and how important it really is. So notice letter B this morning, we see that Paul, not only his example of living unto Christ, but we see Paul's exhortation to living unto Christ. This is a call to the Ephesians. This is not a suggestion to the Ephesians. This is a command. This is an urgency. This is a a call that is upon them. So you notice in verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, understand that this is a specific imperative here. It is an exhortation. It is a call to action to the Ephesians. Now, in the book of Ephesians thus far, we have come through 66 verses and found little, if any, 
direct commands from Paul. Read Ephesians 1 through 3. It is all majority descriptive of who God is, what He has done, what He continues to do. It is all the rich theology of the gospel. All that God has done and who He is on behalf of us. It has been doctrinal. But now, through the rest of this letter, from chapter 4 onward through chapter 6, it is full of imperatives and commands. They flow from Paul's pen like a rushing river to the hearts of the Ephesians that we are to live this way. We are to live this way because of the gospel that he described in chapters 1 through 3. You see, notice he says, I urge you, urge you. This word gives insight to the importance of what Paul is saying. The very same word is used in Romans 12 and verse 1, where it's translated as appeal or beseech. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, or I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When you read that text, does that text convey to you the idea that Paul's just suggesting this might be a way that the Christian should live? No. This is a command to us. This is an exhortation to us. This is an urgency to us. You see, in this context, Paul's not, uh, Paul is not simply just giving a request, but it is a plea, an imploring, or a begging. He's not giving suggestion to the Ephesians, but he's setting forth the divine standards by which they ought to live. Now, often when we give urgent pleas for things, it is because they are essential and important. If I see my kids running towards the road, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be giving an urgent, immediate plea. Stop. Turn around. I don't want it to be a suggestion where they think, well, okay, Dad said that, but I'm just going to keep going towards the road anyway. My call to them is urgent. It is important because there's great weight and reason behind it. Now, we notice that this urgent plea of Paul for the Ephesians, notice what it's grounded in. Notice he says, in the calling to which you have been called. The calling to which you have been called. Now, this calling, Paul mentions, it is absolutely pivotal to their life being lived for Christ. What is this calling of theirs? Friends, this calling is the effectual call of the Spirit that brought them to salvation. Their regeneration in the Spirit. That they have been born again. That they are made new creatures in Christ. You see, this calling upon them in their life, it has been painted clearly throughout Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the glorious doxology of God, what God has done, the triune God, how that God the Father had chosen them in eternity past, redeemed them by the Son in history, and has secured them and saved them by the Holy Spirit. This is the calling that came upon them in life. And so by God's sovereign grace, they have been effectually called unto sonship. They've been called into the family of God, brought into His fellowship. 
1 Corinthians 1.9 speaks of this, that God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's the point here. The calling they have experienced is a supernatural calling, one that changes their life. One that changes the conduct in which they live. And so it is with this calling in mind that Paul urges them to do something. And here's what he urges them to do. Notice it. He says to them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Now, what does Paul mean by this idea of Walking in a certain way. Well, we read through scriptures, the language of walking, it's, it's, it's pretty basic to us. It, it refers to the conduct of a person, the manner in which someone lives, how they live their life. We see examples of people who walked in the right way. Uh, one that comes to my mind is Enoch, right? We, we read of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24, and what does the Bible say about him? Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. So when it says God, that Enoch walked with God, what does that mean? It means the manner of his life, the way he lived, was in step with God. And so Paul here says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, what does he mean by this word worthy? Aren't we all unworthy? There's nothing worthy in us. That is true, right? Understand that the word worthy does not mean that we somehow earn what Christ has given us, but rather, with our life, we reflect what Christ has given us. That is how we are to walk. So to walk worthy is to walk in a way that pleases Christ and reflects Christ, the one who called us out of darkness into light. We see this exhortation throughout Paul's letters. He says to the Colossians, Colossians 1 and verse 10, he says to them, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right there you have it plain and simple. Walk in this manner, pleasing him. He says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Now go with me over a few pages to Philippians chapter 1 and notice how Paul conveys this same truth to them. But with this particular verse, he ties together this issue of unity in the church. Philippians 1.27, notice that he says, Only let your manner of life, manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see this constant theme that Paul's giving? Walk in this way, walk in this way, walk in this way, walk in a way that reflects the gospel. And friend, this truth, is pivotal pivotal to the connection of the rest of the book. Why should the Ephesians 
live out the applications Paul is about to present before them. It is because of the immense gospel calling upon their life. You understand that the Christian life, it is a calling on someone. It's not just a decision that, oh, I just think I'm going to be a Christian today. The Christian life is a calling. A calling. And with the Christian life comes great responsibility to live that out in their life. Now, there are many in this world who think they can just make a profession of faith just to get to heaven and then live however they want. Friend, if you think that way, you do not know the gospel. You can't do that. You can't do that. You understand that, that a true understanding of the Christian life means that I've been changed inside and that inward change works itself outwardly. So the calling Paul references here changes our life and Christians have the conscious responsibility of living in a manner that reflects the gospel that has changed them. So this is the call upon spiritual unity. So what kind of conduct will we see in the Christian who walks in this way and how will that affect unity? Notice with me number two, we see the conduct of spiritual unity because this is, Paul gives some specifics some specifics that should be reflecting in their life that will cultivate unity among the people of God. Notice these virtues that he says in verse 2. This is all in connection with how they walk. You understand? It's all in connection. It's the same sentence. Walk in a manner. Walk in, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Notice verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. See, Paul gives these qualities that are the basis of the unity of the Spirit that they possess. The Spirit in them is the only reason that they can exercise these virtues. And to start with, let us look firstly at humility. What is humility? Well, the Greek word here just has a a simple definition of modesty or being modest. It is a compound word that means to think or judge with lowliness, to have lowliness of mind, lowliness in our mind. Now, what is our human and natural way of thinking? We like to be high-minded. That's our natural inclination, is to think higher of ourselves than we ought to think and think lower of others than we ought to think. John Wesley observed this, that neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. The very concept was so foreign and abhorrent to their way of thinking that they had no term that actually described humility the way Paul is describing humility. I wonder why there was no word for that that day. Well, friend, man, man is naturally prideful. Humility is regarded as distasteful by the pagan world of Paul's day and even today. Pride is what is prized. But this is the point of what Christ has done for us in Himself, that He has changed us from what we used to be into something new. We used to be these proud, arrogant, pompous fools. But what has Christ done to a person? He changes them. He changes them. He humbles them. He cultivates them in a different manner than they were before. 
You see, we are called to humility, to hold ourselves in a lower regard than we used to. And you understand, Christian, that humility truly is foundational to living out unity among the people of God. Because if all of us are proud, we're not going to be unified. Just not. Because when we're proud, we're at war with each other. We're fighting for first place. You see, the opposite of humility is self-focus and self-exaltation. That's the world we live in, right? What's our culture tell us? Our culture says, exalt yourself. Praise yourself. Put self first. But the Christian's called to do the opposite of that. Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others... More significant than yourselves. Note that. Count others more significant than yourselves. This is what humility does. If we are counting ourselves as more significant than others, we don't have the humility the Bible is talking about. We are to be humble without professing our humility. You hear the guy who said, I just want to thank the Lord for how humble he's made me. That's, that's not humility, friend. John MacArthur comments on this and rightly says, humility is terribly elusive because, it focuses, because if focused on too much, it will turn into pride. It's very opposite. Humility is a virtue to be highly sought but never claimed because once it's claimed, it's forfeited. It's true. So, so you ought to never think, well, I think I've reached the mark of humility. You just plummeted down. You just ruined what humility you had. So so the quality becomes immensely more important here of humility when we consider the humility of Christ on our behalf. Friend, there's only one person who deserves to be exalted above everything, and he chose to lower himself below us when he went to the cross. Go read Philippians chapter 2. I don't have time to go there, but... Paul essentially says to them in Philippians 2.5, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the same mind Christ had, how he lowered himself to, unto death, the death of the cross on behalf of us. There's, we'll never be able to fathom the depth of humility Christ displayed. And that is the call for us to live out in our Christian life. So humility here is the first virtue that we ought to walk in. Notice secondly that Paul mentions gentleness. And gentleness, which is also translated as meekness. Now, this is closely connected to humility and is commonly mentioned together in the Scriptures. The word Paul uses here refers to the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. In classical Greek, this word was used to describe strength under control. Now, some, some in our world view those who are meek and gentle as, oh, they're just weak people. It's the opposite, friend. Those who are gentle and meek are the strongest people in the world. Because gentleness is strength under control. Jesus said this of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine: I am gentle and lowly in heart. Friend, the Christian who has gentleness is able to be strong in their convictions and life while being tender and loving with those whom they differ with. We need gentleness among the church today. Because there are too many Christians at war with each other over secondary issues that they need to have love towards each other and send grace where we may differ. 
Paul urged Timothy in this, 2 Timothy 2.25, to be correcting his opponents with gentleness. Not with harshness or abrasiveness, but with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Friend, I can tell you one thing. If you're abrasive and mean in your spirit, even though you may be right in your theology, you will turn a lot of people away and they may never come to the truth. But gentleness makes a difference. For there to be genuine unity among God's people, there needs to be humility and gentleness. Notice this next quality. Paul mentions patience. Oh, we love this one, don't we? What's patience? The word refers to the state of being able to bear up under provocation or hardship. It's also translated as long-suffering. Now, it seems that patience is a virtue I think we all would identify with. We need it, just like all the other virtues. But this one tends to stick out. You know, we often pray, Lord, give me patience, but hurry. Patience. You ever want your patience tested? Drive through Van Buren here when school's letting out. We don't like to endure hardship or uncomfortable things, but as Christians, we are called to do so. The patient person endures negative circumstances and maybe even negative people and doesn't give in to them. This includes being patient with the people of God for sure. God's people require patience. Patience. Perhaps we would do well to consider how patient the Lord is with His people. When I believe I need to be impatient with someone, maybe I need to think about how patient the Lord has been with me. Man, that's deep. You start thinking about your own life and how God's long-suffering bears long with you. That will help you to be patient. Notice Paul connects this patience to the need of bearing with one another in love. See, every believer is prone to disappoint and fail others, sometimes in bad ways. Believers can hurt other believers. You might experience that. But notice that Paul says to be bearing with one another in love. We are called to endure the hurt of others while continuing to love them. Their hurt towards you does not change your love towards them because they're your brother and sister regardless of how they treat you. We're called to forgive them, which is rooted in our love for them in Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3, 13-14, he wrote, bearing with one another, same thing, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see how he's connecting all these things together. But can you see by looking at these virtues, these applications, how they will help in cultivating unity among the people of God? There can't be unity without them. We're called to walk in this way. Notice letter B, we see not only uh, the practical applications here, the personal applications of walking worthily, but we see some peaceful implications in walking worthily. See, these virtues of the Christian life are the fruit of the Spirit that we bear in our life. What Paul says to the Galatians somewhat parallels what he says to the Ephesians. In Galatians 5 and verse 22 through 23, as well as verse 25, you you see some of this same correlation. Notice he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. He lists some of the things that he's listing here in Ephesians. Then he goes on to say in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, or walk in the Spirit. So we notice Paul says in verse 3, is in connection to walking in this way. And notice what he says. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want to point out to you here that this unity of the Spirit is the central theme and focus of this. What's Paul talking about when he says this? He's speaking of the unity that only the Holy Spirit is the author of. See, everywhere that the Spirit indwells, which is every believer, there is the foundation of unity among them. He's not speaking necessarily of organizational unity, although there's application there, such as to promote in many denominations or some kind of ecumenical movement. He is speaking of the inner and universal unity of the Spirit in which every true believer is bound to every other true believer. Every person who has been born again has known the true gospel of Christ, and has the same Holy Spirit dwelling within them. That Holy Spirit dwelling within us unites us as one people of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, that's an indication you do not belong to Him. As Romans 8 and verse 9 tells us, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So unity among God's people, understand, it is only possible because of the person who unites them, which is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who has brought us together in the same family and people. Our unity together in the Spirit was not animated or coerced by us. The common denominator in all of us here today is one person. We are all unique people, different. And I'm glad. The church would be boring if it was filled with a bunch of Josephs. I'm just telling you. They'd be at war with each other, probably. We're all created unique. Unique. But there's one common denominator that brings us together. That one common denominator is the person of the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who convicted you, called you, brought you unto Christ and has united you in the local church to which you belong. We are here today because of Him and not ourselves. This was Christ's will and prayer before His death, that His people, those His present disciples of His time, but also all those in the future who would believe that they would be one. Now, I want to read this passage with you in John 17 for a moment. John 17 and verse 20 through 26. John 17, verse 20 through 26. This is part of what is known as Christ's high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. And his prayer is so rich and yet challenging to us. And notice that he's praying in John 17, 20. He says, I do not ask for these only by his present disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's comforting to know that Jesus, nearly 2,000 years, prayed for you, those who would believe through their word. But what's his prayer consist of? Verse 21, that they may all be what? One. One. 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What does Jesus pray for here for his people? That his disciples, past, present, and future, would all be one. And he contrasts that with the same union of the triune God, that the Father and Son are one. And to what end is this unity? Notice that he says, that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, the union of God's people as one testifies to the glory of Christ who has redeemed us and brought us together. People who used to be at odds with each other, especially in the context of Ephesians, Jews and Gentiles hating each other, now loving each other as one people. To where belongs the glory for that? Christ alone. Christ alone. So it is, not this, uh, it is not that this is an experiential unity, but that this unity of common eternal life shared by all those who believe the truth results in this one body of Christ sharing His life. The unity of believers here as one people together, in which we look through Scripture, it is chiefly expressed in the local church as we gather together to worship, serve, and fellowship together in one Savior who is Christ. So this unity that Paul is talking about is not created by us, but it is to be cultivated by us. Notice that Paul says for them to be eager to maintain this unity. Eager to maintain this unity. See, the unity every believer partakes in, it cannot be undone. But it must be upheld in our walk with Christ. The word maintain conveys the idea of preserving or causing to continue. This shows us responsibility in the realm of Christian unity. Unity in the church requires a desire and discipline to maintain that. If you don't care about unity in the church, you will do whatever you want. And you don't care who it offends or how it will affect the church. There are a lot of people in the church that live and behave in such a way. They want to do whatever they want, and they don't care how it might impact the unity of the church. Notice the word eager here. It means to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. It, it, it can also be translated as diligent or endeavoring or being zealous. Paul, Paul's calling on the Ephesians that the unity of the church... They have to be zealous about this. 
They have to be eager about this, about cultivating this unity. So that's a challenge to us. How important is the unity of the church to us? You've got to think about that on an individual level. How important is the unity of the church to me? We must hold it in high regard. What does Paul say of connecting to this unity of the Spirit and preserving it? Notice this in verse number 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You understand that true unity is bound together in peace. Peace is what God's people should abide in together. This internal union which we have in Christ should flow outwardly in our living among the local church. This is Paul's desire. This is his joy for the church. Philippians 2, 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I believe this is, a, this is something that is so needed in our day. It is a sad and tragic thing to hear of churches who are at war with each other over silly, nonsensical things, trivial things. Now, it's one thing if there's a division over a serious doctrinal error or a moral thing that needs to be addressed. But ultimately, the church should abide in peace in this unity of the Spirit. There are things you can agree to disagree and get along just fine. And this is why Paul urges them to walk in this way that will cultivate unity and this bond of peace. Charles Hodge comments and says, The peace which results from love, humility, meekness, and mutual forbearance is essential to the union and communion of the members of Christ's body, which is the fruit and evidence of the Spirit's presence. I could have summarized it better, so I figured I'd share it. You're probably thinking you could have just read that quote and we'd gone home, right? But then I would that then I would look like I was being lazy, so I didn't want to do that. So what Paul's conveying here, our Christian conduct majorly impacts our unity together. Majorly impacts our unity together in Christ as Christians fellowshipping and worshiping together. Notice with me number three this morning, and lastly. I want you to see the cause for spiritual unity, the cause. What's the cause for this unity that we're to have? Now, I love how this section goes because Paul lays here a sevenfold foundation to the unity that believers have. Now, there may be many outward things that divide us, but these seven things Paul mentions cannot cannot be broken or undone. This is why the unity of who we are in Christ it will forever remain the same. Even if you don't get along with someone down here who's in Christ, you can't erase what, these, what Paul says here. This is the foundation of our unity. Notice with me, letter A, and you can just probably fill these in as we come through these verses. Look, verse 4, we are bound together in one body, spirit, and hope. Notice what Paul says. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And here's what's interesting. As you look at verse 4, 5, and 6, you'll see each person of the triune God at work in them. Each person. In verse 4, we see this unity being realized by by God the Spirit. He says there is one body. Now, have we seen this term used before in Ephesians? Absolutely. Ephesians 2.16, Paul says concerning Christ's work that he would reconcile us both to God in one, what? Body. 
one body by the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's he talking about? Jews and Gentiles, one people, one body. All believers are one people. Now, this body of all the redeemed is called, uh, often called Christ's church in a broad sense, as used in Ephesians 3.21, and him be glory in the church. All the saints of God collectively are one spiritual body united together in Christ by the Holy Spirit. They are a heavenly body who are united for eternity. So if you don't get along with somebody in Christ down here, you will up there. You're going to be with them forever. So understand that there's, there's no denominational or geographical or ethnic, ethnic or racial body. There is no Gentile, Jewish, male or female, slave or free church. There is only Christ's church. Only the body of Christ. And that has been the heart of the book of Ephesians, this one people of God. But it must be noted that what Paul says of the church here in a broad spiritual sense is directly true of the local visible churches. There must be an emphasis on the local visible church because it is through the local visible churches that unity among Christians is truly manifested. When we come together and gather. Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 12:5, so we though are many, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So within the sphere of local visible churches, understand there's going to be differences between this church and the other church down the road. Differences of confessions of faith, doctrinal statements, constitutions, how they might operate. But every true believer has unity with every other true believer because of Christ in them. Now, this does not mean that every local church claiming to have the gospel has the right gospel. But those who do have the right gospel understand that there is a broad union with all other believers in this world. I may disagree with some Christians down the road on other doctrinal issues, but there's one thing. If they're truly born again, we agree on Christ. That doesn't change. Notice that Paul connects this one body to the one spirit. He says, the one spirit, who is this? It is the triune, uh, the third person, the triune God, the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many uh, spirits in this world that influence men in various ways, but there's only one Holy Spirit who brings men to one way, and it's the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who has given life to us, who has given unity to us in bringing us together, making us one people where He indwells. Paul, connecting the body to the Spirit, wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12 through 13. He says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. You see the connection to what he's saying? One, one, one. Lastly, Paul shows us the third foundation of our unity, saying, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You understand that every believer in this world has only one hope. One hope. What is that hope? Well, Paul mentioned it earlier, Ephesians 1.18. He wanted them to know the hope to which he's called you. You see, the hope that every believer has is that confident expectation 
of our future with Christ for all of eternity. Every believer has that same hope. This hope we have unites us forever as one people and cannot be undone. And we know this hope because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Letter B, we see the second second aspect in verse 5. The next three. We are bound together by one Lord, faith, and baptism. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit in unity. Guess who we see here? God the Son. God the Son. Paul says we're unified in one Lord. You see, there is no question about who this Lord is, right? It's none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings. Every believer, regardless of their denominational distinction, has one Lord. You know, Jesus is the Lord of the Baptists, and He's also the Lord of the Presbyterians. Now, I don't agree with the Presbyterians on everything. There's one thing that we have in common. We have one Lord. Just one. You could say that about any others. He is the one Lord that all true born-again Christians confess. Philippians 2, 10-11 makes that unmistakably clear, where Paul writes and says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. There is no other Lord but Him. So understand that this this was the key theme of early Christianity. They refused to confess anyone other as Lord than Jesus Christ. They often did that to the detriment of their lives. This one Lord has saved them and united them together. Paul continues with another foundation of you. It is one faith. Now, what is meant by this one faith? Well, there's been various interpretations of this, and I'll briefly give this to you. Some interpret this to mean the whole body of Christian doctrine contained in the whole of Scripture, the core doctrines of truth that Christians confess, or the saving faith every believer experiences in the true gospel. Now, there's probably truth to each of those interpretations, but one thing is sure, every believer is united in one saving faith in the one true gospel. Every believer holds to the scriptures as their constitution of truth, nothing else. While there is variation when you get to broader systems of Christian doctrine, the core fundamentals of the faith of the gospel are the same for every true Christian. So we need to recognize this. Two things quickly. There's one body of truth of the interpretation of all Scripture from which we form all Christian systems of doctrine. It is the faith delivered to us. This includes the gospel along with the whole of God's truth. God's Word contains many truths, but its individual truths are but harmonious facets of His one truth, which is our one faith. Now, while we're here on this earth, we're never going to be in perfect unity among every doctrine. This is not going to happen. In heaven we will be. While we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christian doctrine, there are core truths of the faith that unify us, and that is the gospel, the faith of Christ's redemptive work. Charles Hodge again comments on this, and I think he summarizes it well. It is only as to the fundamental doctrines, those necessary to piety and those necessary to salvation, that this unity can be affirmed to the, of the whole church as it now exists on earth. So ultimately, our saving faith is one true gospel in an unwavering unity on earth. Thirdly is this section, Paul says, one baptism. 
unifies the saints. And this is another debated topic. Some claim this is a reference to the baptism of the Spirit, which is greatly debated, and I wouldn't be dogmatic one way or the other. But I think it seems more likely that Paul is referring to one baptism that is entrusted to the church, the ordinance of water baptism. Water baptism is the outward picture of the inward work of the Spirit that, with, that believers are identified by. John, John Gill comments in the same fashion, one baptism, saying one baptism, literally and properly so called, which is water baptism, and which is to be administered in one and the same way, by immersion in water, and on one and the same subjects, believers in Christ, and in one in the same name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and to be performed but once, when rightly administered. John MacArthur also comments the same way. The one baptism of verse 5 is best taken to refer to water baptism, the common New Testament means of believers publicly confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord. Water baptism was extremely important in the early church, not as a means of salvation or special blessing, but as a testimony of identity with and unity in Jesus Christ. Christian, the will of God for you as a believer is to have been fo- as to follow the Lord in baptism. It is unbiblical just to have a profession of faith and then never get baptized. Baptism is identifying with Christ and his people. Something every believer is commanded to do. And that is a beautiful picture of our unity together. Lastly, number C. Number C you can tell I'm hungry. Letter C. Letter C, we are bound together through one Father over all. Paul concludes these foundations of unity with the last but not least person of the Trinity, which is God the Father. What a powerful truth this is. Notice this. We are unified by the triune God just as we were saved by the triune God. Ephesians 1, the triune God's work of redemption. And here Paul shows us how the triune God unifies his people together in a union that cannot be broken. Verse 6, Paul says that there is one by one God and Father of all. This shows that the Father is one with the Son and the Spirit. This is a beautiful text on the Trinity. From ancient time, this has been the truth that there's one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet this one God also is three persons united as one. And here's the reality with this. The triune God not only creates the unity that believers have, but is the perfect picture of our unity that we have. That's a glorious thing. And as the one true God, we see He is the one, lastly, who is over all and through all and in all. And understand the word all here does not refer to all humanity or all creation, but the context is to all his people. His people. Being over all reveals his absolute sovereignty over all things that pertains to us. Being through all shows his absolute omnipotence, all power through his people. Being in all reveals his omnipresence in his people, that he pervades his people. The church is his habitation, as Paul already rightly said. As we've looked at all that we've looked at in this text, only this triune God can do what he has done in causing this unity for God's people. So much has been said here. 
I know I've gone over. But here's the central message as we close. Christians are unified as one. We need to understand that. We are one people. I may disagree with you on some silly thing or secondary thing, but we ought to hone in on the fact that we are one people of God. And since we're one people of God, Christians need to live out their life in a way that cultivates that unity, especially in your own local church. What Paul says in the first few verses, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of this calling with humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing one another in love, that must be the application for us. That's what cultivates unity that we all have already in Christ. So I ask us this morning as we close, does our life reflect these virtues of unity? Do I live out and have this virtue in my life? Humility and gentleness and these things that we've mentioned. And the second question, is unity a priority for you in Lee Creek Baptist Church? That's where it really hits home. Is unity a priority for you for this church that God has established in Van Buren, Kentucky? Let us take these things home and apply them to our life. Let's stand to our feet and we'll prepare for a closing song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and we're so thankful, Lord, for what your word has taught us today. How convicting the things that are mentioned are to us, that we, we must be people, Father, who walk in a way that is worthy, that is well-pleasing, as becoming of the gospel that has called us and saved us. Help us, Father, as your people, to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be long-suffering, to be loving. Help us, Father, to understand the unity that we have in Christ and to cultivate that unity among other people that know Him too. We pray that your word would minister to our hearts today as you see fit. In Jesus' name.